The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Father, I thank you that you are here, now, present, working for us in Christ. Thank you that you're our strength, you're our song, you're worthy of highest praise. Thank you that you overcome distractions, the hardness of our hearts, and you make us treasure you. We don't take that lightly. We thank you that you have called us to be your own. I pray that you would meet us tonight. I know that I feel weary, and I anticipate there's some of that out here tonight as well. So I ask that you would be our upholder, clear away anxiety and distraction, that we might see you and savor you for your glory and our joy I pray. Amen. Thanks for coming back. This is a driven schedule for those who have full days. So it's just awesome that you come back. Let's see what we have here. What slide am I on? Good question. Let me... It is the first dispersion and return slide. It actually says Old Covenant Structure on it in orange and blue, perhaps. There we go. All right. Now up on the screen is the order of Jesus' Bible. Some of you have probably noted in Luke 24 how Jesus says everything that was written about him in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus' Bible comes to us in a different arrangement, exactly the same books, but it's in a different order than we have it in our English Bibles. And we see that order up here on the screen, and you'll notice on the bottom that there is narrative and commentary sections. The Old Testament is framed by the story. So you start out in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Then you move from the law of Moses into the former prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Ruth doesn't show up after Judges in Jesus' Bible. Ruth is actually part of the third section, of which Psalms is the major initial book. But Ruth shows up as a preface 
to the book of Psalms. Narrative, narrative, we come from Joshua all the way up to the book of Kings. So they enter into the land, and then they're kicked out of the land. And at this point, there's a break in Jesus' Bible. And this is where you come to the latter prophets and the former writings. I call them commentary, because they're giving us clarity as to how to read all the storybooks. In We start out with Jeremiah in the commentary books, and the commentary books end with Jeremiah as well. It's Lamentations. So the prophets here are actually not in the order that they come to us historically, because Isaiah was the earliest of the major prophets. It goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But Jeremiah is the biggest of the commentary books, and all these commentary books are put in the order of the longest comes first, then you move down to the shortest. So Jeremiah is bigger than Ezekiel, Ezekiel is bigger than Isaiah, and then Isaiah introduces the twelve. And in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, he talks about the book singular of the prophets, the book of the prophets. All 12 minor prophets are p- packaged together in Jesus' Bible. They all fit on a single scroll. So you walk through these prophets that are giving perspective on why the history of Israel went the way it did. So you get the covenant is established in the law, and then you get the covenant being enforced in the prophets. First you find out what happened in Joshua through Kings, and then you learn why it went the way it did. All the prophets who were speaking into the history, that's what we get next. Then we come to the writings. The former writings are commentary. Um, And Ruth, super small book, then we start out with the biggest and move all the way down to the smallest, except for a small tweak. But it suggests that Ruth is an introduction into the Psalms. What is Ruth about? It's about one of David's ancestors who was in exile, who came out of exile in Moab and was redeemed by a kinsman redeemer from Bethlehem. And it's set up, the very last word in the book of Ruth is David. It's a genealogy, a ten-member genealogy that moves us from Boaz to David. And it sets up the reader to have hope heightened in the promises that were given to David. So that just as his ancestors were in exile and redeemed by the kinsman redeemer from Bethlehem, so his future descendants who are in exile as of the end of Kings, as of the end of the book of the Twelve, so his future descendants who are in exile will be redeemed from a kinsman redeemer from Bethlehem. And Ruth moves us then into the book of Psalms, which celebrates the movement from tribulation unto triumph of the Messiah. The highest type of psalm that we have is lament. Job unpacks that image of lament. All of these give us pictures for how the people who are living 
in exile, we're actually hoping in the Lord. All the writings have a a positive angle that's not found in the prophets. The prophets, all of them, tell us about the new covenant, the hope beyond the curse, but they're mostly focused on judgment, on punishment. But the writings take a different angle. This is in the midst of suffering. How was the remnant continuing to trust in their God? So we see a picture of that in the book of Job. We see wise living portrayed in the book of Proverbs. Not just wise living generally, but it's written to the sons of the king. Solomon is the speaker. And he's calling his sons, listen to me. That means he's raising up noblemen in the line of David. And every one of those sons himself would be a picture of the coming Messiah. And the book of Proverbs unpacks the entire life of wisdom that would be embodied in the Messiah himself. He would be the perfect person of wisdom. Ecclesiastes, wrestling with how do I live in a world that doesn't make sense? Song of Songs, celebrating human marriage as a pointer to the greater marriage. And Lamentations, also written by Jeremiah, so the whole commentary section is framed by a Jeremiah book. Lamentations also provides us a bridge back into the story. Because kings ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in Babylon, Lamentations takes us back there and then leads us into the exile where the narrative books pick up again with David, uh, with Daniel. So Daniel comes in and proclaims, yes, the kingdoms of the earth are strong, but they will all be brought down by the kingdom of God, which will be elevated. That's where we're going to start tonight, in dispersion and return. Esther, how the Lord was preserving a people for himself. Ezra and Nehemiah, one book in Jesus' Bible, packaged together, giving testimony of God's faithfulness to preserve his people, but also giving clarity that things are not how they should be yet. All that they had been longing for, the presence of God in their midst, all the enemies put down, the son of David on the throne, hearts changed in in hunger and thirsting for God. None of that's happened. When we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, it's just a broken people back in the land. Nehemiah's perspective, they're still slaves. They're still in exile, even though there's been a small group that's returned. They're still in exile in need of a deliverer. And then Chronicles comes, and Chronicles is the last book in Jesus' Bible, Genesis to to Chronicles. And Chronicles begins with Adam. It's a genealogy, another one of those thrilling portions of our scripture. Nine chapters of genealogy just to invite you in to this two-book history. But it starts with Adam recalling the entire history that has happened in the Old Testament, but now approaching that history from a new perspective. When we read Chronicles right after Kings, it's easy to miss the distinction. They're two very, very different books. But when you read Chronicles at the end, what you begin to recognize is that the story of Israel's history is being portrayed now through a fresh lens, a lens of hope. All the northern kings, 
are just pushed aside and barely not even addressed. David's sin with Bathsheba is not even mentioned. Solomon's failure is not talked about. Manasseh, who was the most wicked of all kings in the book of Kings, pushing out in Judah all Yahweh worship and sacrificing the children of Judah on the altar. In Chronicles, all of a sudden, we learned that Manasseh didn't stay that way, but actually was exiled up into Babylon, and he got saved while he was there. And he came back to Judah and finished his days loving and honoring the Lord. That's not mentioned at all in the book of Kings. The end of Chronicles is the decree of Cyrus. Now, if you've read Isaiah, you know that Isaiah envisioned a two-stage restoration. And he named those who would redeem how that restoration would happen. One named Cyrus would be the instrument of getting them back into the land after exile. But the one named the servant would be the one who, after Cyrus, would reconcile all things to God. The first, Cyrus, would restore them physically to the land. The servant would reconcile them through atonement to the Lord. A two-stage restoration on the other side of exile. Chronicles ends telling us that Cyrus made his decree. And so you and I, the reader, reading through our Old Testaments as Jesus, in, in, in the order of Jesus' Bible, come to the book of Chronicles, and now what we're expecting is the servant to arrive. If Cyrus has made his decree, then what comes after Cyrus is full-blown forgiveness of sins, making things right between God and man through the one Isaiah called the servant. And then we turn the page from Chronicles and we read Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in my Old Testament survey that Pastor Peter mentioned, I actually unpack the message of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus' Bible rather than in the order of our English Bibles. Same books, but a different arrangement. And I try to guide our thinking as to how this particular arrangement actually heightens hope for the Messiah. So, This week, we've been focusing on the story, the story of God, and you see in the narrative portions that the entire Old Testament is framed by the story. Narrative in the law, narrative in Joshua through Kings, and narrative in Daniel through Chronicles. And in the middle, two sections of commentary. Our New Testaments were structured exactly the same way, I think, in order to pattern after the Old Testament. The Gospels are narrative. Acts is narrative. Paul's letters are commentary. Hebrew and the general epistles are commentary. And Revelation ends the story. If you know the order of Jesus' Bible, then you can see that it's being repatterned in the New Testament. The Old Covenant is established in the law, it's enforced in the prophets, and it's enjoyed, celebrated as the means of hope for the Messiah in the writings. The new covenant is established in the Gospels. 
It's enforced, if we could call it that, in Acts and Paul's letters. And it's celebrated in a context of suffering in the general epistles in Revelation. The way that God gives us his Bible, framing both the Old and the New Testaments with the story, invites us to read everything in light of that story. From Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation, this is providing us a framework. If we can get our hands around the big story, we'll understand everything. Oh boy. Susan. So we're going to go into D, dispersion and return. My fancy word for exile and initial restoration. We'll see if Susan can help us. Is it my clicker? Does it get caught or something? Okay. All right. So we begin here with the circle with the line through it. What does that represent? Exile. And we saw it where? Where did we already see it? In the very first section, kickoff and rebellion, creation, fall, flood, exile. So here's our key text. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Remember how Moses, we read that Moses in Deuteronomy 31 anticipated that Israel would sin. And in sinning, all the curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 would be poured out upon them. Daniel now, at the end of Israel's Old Testament history, is looking at all that's happened and reading the history of the covenant in light of the covenant. It's not just random what's happened. God has judged them because of their sin. He's reading all the acts that have happened through the lens of the Old Covenant. He says, The curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. And then he begins to plea. O God, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because your city, Jerusalem, and your people are called by your name. Exile. In 2 Kings 17, we took a taste of this already, this passage. But it's the moment where after chapters and chapters of just walking through the history of rebellion and judgment, rebellion and judgment, God comes and gives clarity through his prophet, the author of the book of Kings, why things went the way they did. This is how Second Kings 17, 6 and 7 read. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. That was the northern kingdom's capital. 
And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habar, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Why did the exile happen? It happened because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. First Chronicles, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people, until there was no remedy. That moment will come for everyone in this world. Right now, we are living in what Jesus will call, we'll see it in a little bit, the year of the Lord's favor. It is not yet the day of the vengeance of our God. The year of favor, the day of vengeance. But the day of vengeance will come. And in that moment, there will no longer be a remedy. Right now, we have an opportunity as the church to be proclaiming the terms of peace before the great king shows up in his day of wrath. He sent the church before him to proclaim this is what it takes to be reconciled with the living God. In the days of Alexander the Great, I was surprised. I always thought, you know, Alexander the Great, mighty warrior, which he was. He took Greek language and culture to the ends of the earth. But he died at age 32 of a mosquito bite. Malaria. I just thought, man, such a young buck to do such amazing feats. But one of the things we read about in his annals is that as he was expanding his empire, Greek language and Greek culture throughout the world, what he would do is send a kerux, a preacher, a herald, before him to the city that he is about to approach. The herald would arrive and proclaim the terms of peace, surrender or die. Those are your options. They could stand up and battle Alexander the Great and lose, or they could surrender. But the unbelievable work of this king is that he would send the Kerus, the preacher, who would Keruso preach. And the New Testament authors, not only the New Testament authors, but the Greek translators of the Septuagint, let's talk there first, the Greek translators of the Septuagint, that is, sorry, the Greek translators of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, making their translation in the very days of Alexander the Great's onslaught, liked to pull the language of Kerux and Keruso into Scripture. As Isaiah looked ahead to the one who would have the Spirit of the Lord upon him, who would proclaim good news, what does that word proclaim? Keruso. He is a preacher. To proclaim good news before the day of the Lord comes. 
And the most common term for what the New Testament pastors and elders are doing, they are preaching. They are he, a preacher is a kerux, and the, preach, the actual act of preaching is the verb keruso. But it sits in this historical context where that's what the great king did. The great king sent his messengers before him to proclaim the terms of peace. The church is now that peace proclaimer before the day of the Lord comes. But what we have to recognize and what we have to make clear to people is that the day will come where there will be no more remedy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In Genesis 1, we read, and there was evening and there was morning, day 1. There was evening and there was morning, day 2. Spurgeon said, morning and evening. Genesis 1 says, evening and morning. Genesis 1 is reading, it is wanting us, I think, it's inviting us to, to see that light always overcomes darkness. In God's book, day does not end with night. A day ends with light. Right now we are living at dawn. This is not all there is. If this is all there was, then it would often feel like lingering night and we could easily become hopeless. But the reality is that living in the dawn, we have hope for noon because the sun is risen. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are blood-bought every dawn. Fresh beginnings every day. In this time of dispersion and initial restoration, dispersion and return, God is loud and clear regarding the hope that is coming. There may be no kingdom Judah is devastated. There may be no king. There's no Davidic son on the throne. But God raises up people like Daniel to, to, and gives him these kinds of visions. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Remember, there was a giant vision of a statue. The head of gold was Babylon. The chest of silver was, how did it work? Medes and Persians, but I thought there was two parts. Then the thighs of bronze were, were told the kingdom of Greece and then it's not named but it appears to be Rome that is the feet a mixture of iron and clay with ten toes and then out of a mountain is a small stone cut that grows into a great mountain and crushes all those man-made kingdoms Daniel 7 I saw in the night visions, and behold, the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man. In this chapter, instead of a statue, 
all the kingdoms of the earth are proclaimed, are, are portrayed as beasts. All the kingdoms of men are beastly, whereas the kingdom of God is portrayed like the Son of Man. There's an image here of Adam as the ultimate royal king who's called to fill the earth, multiply, subdue it, have dominion. That's royal language. He's also called to serve and guard the garden. That's priestly language. And here, you, you, the image of the royal, the, the royal person who's being lifted up as the son of man is... He's like a son of man. He's like a son of Adam. He's human, imaging God like he's supposed to. But all the kingdoms of men that are not surrendered to the Lord are like beasts. He comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18. He is this son of man. Daniel 9. One of the great prayers. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. All of them, three of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Here's Daniel. Oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. He's not bringing anything. He's asking for what he doesn't deserve, what his people don't deserve. Listen to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Do it for your sake. Make much of of your name. Make your face shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open our eyes and see our, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, says Jeremiah in Lamentations. Now, in the same period, in the midst of exile, God raises up the prophet Ezekiel. They're without Jerusalem has been destroyed as of Ezekiel chapter 11. They're without a king, without a place, and this is what we read. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. The new covenant does not come about because Israel was good. No, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That's what's driving God in the new covenant. 
for the sake of my name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you've profaned among them. I will vindicate it. You have, you've defiled it by your witness. In the Ten Commandments, when it says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, very literally it says, don't bear the name of the Lord in vain. And I think the point is not speech, first and foremost. The point is that we are representatives of God in the world. We bear his name. We claim ourselves, yes, I'm a Yahweh follower, and then we live like the devil. We're mean to our spouses. We dishonor our children. We aren't people of integrity in the workplace. And all of a sudden, the name of God is profaned. And he says, the reason I'm going to do a new work in the new covenant is for the sake of my name, in order that I might have a proper witness in the world. Remember Acts 1.8. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be, what? My witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's what he's done. He's created a people who can give witness to Jesus. Not perfectly, but truly. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And what's going to be the result? The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In their bodies they've profaned the Lord. Now he's going to do something in them that's going to give witness to all around of his worth, of his holiness. He's going to do it inside of them. And that's what we see happening in Acts 1.8. I'll put my spirit in you. And you will be my witnesses. The nations will know that I am the Lord when I, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's not for your sake that I will act. Let that be known to you. Indeed, be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O Israel. In spite of them, he promises to do a fresh work. While they are still sinners, he will send his son to die for them and transform them from the inside out. He'll change their heart, and not only will he give them new desires, he'll, he'll give them his spirit. His very presence is going to in, inhabit their souls. They will become the temple of the living God. Notice what it says. When he puts his spirit within them, he will cause them to walk in his statutes. And to keep his rules. This sets us up for tomorrow morning as we consider the Christian's relationship to Old Testament law. Because right here, Ezekiel is looking ahead to the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out 
And the question is, what is it that that spirit will enable? Is Christianity an anti-law system? Well, here it says, no, I'll just empower you to actually keep the law. And yet we know that Jesus transforms so many things. But we are not lawless people. No, we, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21, I'm not under the law, that is, the Mosaic law, but I am under the law of Christ. What does that look like? And how is it related to the Mosaic law? We'll consider some of that tomorrow morning. Imperfect foreshadows of complete restoration. The initial restoration was, was truly imperfect. When we get to the end of the Old Testament, we know we need a sequel because the fulfillment hasn't come. Here's Haggai. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that is the house of the Lord, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Remember Exodus thirty-three sixteen. we read it. When Moses pleaded with God, if your presence does not go up with us, there's nothing that will make us different from any of the other nations. You alone are what makes us different. So here, Haggai is one of the prophets who returns in the initial restoration, and he and Zechariah are constantly pushing. You've got to build the temple. You've got to build the temple as a testimony to his greatness. And they build the temple, you remember, and many of the people who are there were actually old enough, over 70 years old, to remember the previous temple. 586 to 516, 70 years to the month when the temple was destroyed to when it was rebuilt. And there's still some people there in Haggai's day who remembered the glories of Solomon's temple and they see what they've rebuilt and it's nothing in comparison. And then God says the glory of this house will be far, will far exceed any glory you've ever seen in the future. And I think he's talking about when not just the picture of the temple, but the reality of the temple, Jesus himself, comes. That's the temple. Jesus claims himself to be the temple. Remember Ezekiel, sorry, Exodus 25. Moses is up on the mountain and God says, I want you to make on earth in accordance with the pattern that I show you in heaven. He sees something in heaven that is the real. And what's on earth? All the earthly tabernacle, all the earthly temple, all the priests, all the sacrifices, they're but a picture of the reality. And when the reality comes, you'll no longer need the picture. That's why the temple gets set aside and Jesus and the church are the reality. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
This is what life's like in Israel after they return. Now, not everybody returned. That's why we have the book of Esther. There's a large group of Jews that decided things are going pretty well here in Persia. I think we'll stick around. And they stayed up in Mesopotamia. But there was that small group that returned to Jerusalem to try to restart things. And yet, this is what we read about them. They are but an imperfect foreshadow of the complete restoration. Sin. This is what dominates this period. So we come to the end of the Old Testament. Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 36. When it envisioned the future, it portrayed it as a garden of Eden. It even used that language to recall paradise. That's what's coming. The new creation is going to be like a new Eden, but it wasn't there yet. The nation reunited 12 tribes all together. And then into their midst, Gentiles who have been planted in the midst of them. Abraham, not just being a father of a nation, but a father of a multitude of nations. It hadn't happened yet at the end of the Old Testament. The Davidic king reigning. Isaiah 9 envisioned the messianic age with the Davidic king on the throne. Surrounded by people from every tongue and tribe. It hasn't happened yet at the end of the Old Testament. A new covenant of universal, everlasting peace. This king who is on the throne will establish perfect justice, overcoming all evil, all iniquity. And he'll establish peace in the world. It will be like God's Sabbath rest realized again. When God rests on the seventh day, it's not a rest of laziness. No, he's done all his work, and now he sits down on his throne in absolute sovereignty, in perfect peace with his world, and all of his world at perfect peace with him. When the fall comes, God's sovereignty does not get altered, but the people are in rebellion. And the rest of the story is about God working, working to reestablish kingdom peace. And the Old Testament prophets envisioned that that peace would be restored. But when you come to the Old Testament, that's not where we're at. With this, they anticipated a new inner disposition to love the Lord and to obey. You remember Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all your heart and with all your soul. Love would be the characteristic of the people in the new covenant age. God would put his spirit in their lives so that they would keep his statutes and walk in his ways. It's not happening at the end of the Old Testament. We're still longing for more. God's presence experienced in their midst, the very spirit of the living God in the midst of the people. It's not happening at this time. The Old Testament comes to an end And you're longing, longing for the fulfillment to actually arrive. If you've read the Old Testament rightly, you just want to turn your page. You want to, to see. When will it come? Who will bring it? Let me pause right there and see if there's any questions.
Old Testament foundation, New Testament fulfillment. We've come to the end of the foundation. Yes. Good question. How many people came back during the restoration? So we have three exiles and three restorations. Exile one was in 605 when Daniel and his friends were taken and Jehoiakim. Second exile happened in 597 when Ezekiel was taken. Then 586, final exile, Jerusalem's destroyed. First restoration is 538 when Cyrus makes his decree and Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets, Joshua is the high priest, and um, Zerubbabel is the governor. And if I recall right, it's about 26,000 people. We read the specific numbers in the book of Ezra. Then, second return is under Ezra. So 538, then the temple's rebuilt in 516, then Ezra comes back in about 443, I think. 443 is when Ezra returns, and we're told that only 4,000 people come back with him at that time. Then about 430, 13 years later, Nehemiah comes back. Ezra's the high priest now, Nehemiah's the governor, and we're not told how many people came back. It may have only been Nehemiah and his armed guard, but we, we don't know who came back with him in order to rebuild the walls. But, so we're talking actually a very small, very small number of people that have tried to reestablish Jerusalem. There's a much greater contingent. Um, so the story of Esther happens between 538 and the days of Ezra in 443. The story of Esther happens between that window. And in that day, we learn that when Haman wants to destroy all the Jews, that the Jews are living as far as India to the east and as far south as Ethiopia. So the Jews have just spread out all over the globe at that point, And only a very small group return to Jerusalem. Others? Yeah. That's a good question. How many people were in Judea before they came back? Right, how many Jews were there? Got it. Well, what we know is that when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom and when the Babylonians took the southern kingdom, they didn't kill everybody. Many of them became exiles and they took them back up north. But there were some people that the Assyrians left. The poorest of the poor were left in Samaria. And the nobles of Samaria, the Jewish nobles, were taken out and they were replaced by Assyrian nobles. So now you've got an Assyrian government in what used to be the northern kingdom and you've got poor Jews and they begin to intermarry and become the people we know of as the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are a mixed group of Assyrians and Jews 
that they were a mixed breed, and that's why the Jews of Jesus' day didn't like them. But that's the very group that gives problems when um, Haggai and Zechariah want to build the temple. The Samaritans are coming down and wanting to stop all this work in Jerusalem because they appear to still have these allegiances. When Jeroboam I made the calves in Dan and Bethel, They like the northern situation, and they don't want to surrender to Jerusalem. Um, The Babylonians left the poorest of the poor in Jerusalem as well. That's why Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem after the exile. Jerusalem falls, and Jeremiah is there from 586 to 580 when he's then taken off to Egypt, kicking and screaming. He, He knew that God said, never return to Egypt, but he was dragged off there by a bunch of other Jews. But we don't know how many Jews there were actually there. We don't know the numbers of people that were still left. So the Bible, that I, as best as I can remember, that doesn't tell us how many folks were there. Good question. All right. We've now come to the best part of the story, Right? O. O and M. Here we go. Foundation completed. Now we come to fulfillment. Overlap of the ages. There's four stages here. And here's the passage that I've picked as the the key one that I I think helps give clarity to Christ's work and the church age. That's what overlap of the ages is. Christ's work at the cross and resurrection and the age of the church. Overlap of the ages. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. New creation has already intruded in the person of Jesus. The old creation in Adam is still continuing. But the new creation has already started. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And now... What does this mean? It means that we are ambassadors for Christ in this overlap time. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The New Testament makes clear that Jesus came... Uh, the, the, the image is that he would come twice. First time as suffering servant, second time as conquering king. Two visits, that there's, there's an all-readiness to the new creation, and yet there's a not-yetness a not to the new creation. There's an all-readiness to the kingdom that's been anticipated, and yet there's a not-yetness to the kingdom. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, kicking off his ministry, citing Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach. There's that word, verb, keruso. To proclaim good news to the poor. Good news is the same term for gospel. To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Period. Quotation marks. And he rolled up the scroll and he said, 
Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 60, 1, verse 3 does not end with the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 3 actually ends with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. But when Jesus inaugurates his ministry, he, he like leaves off the part about the day of vengeance. I don't think it's because he didn't think it was important. I think it's because he's giving clarity. I'm initiating the year of favor. But I haven't come yet to initiate the day of the vengeance of God. A year of favor where the spirit will be poured out and the opportunity will be for every man and woman on the earth to surrender before the great day of the Lord comes. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May we be those who are eagerly waiting for him. He will return a second time. Here's what I mean by already, but not yet. Here's Paul. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Present sufferings not compared to future glory. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we Wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We don't have it all yet. This is not it. This is not our eternal state. Right now, we are still struggling under the weight of deteriorating flesh, struggling with temptations, evil desires. But one day, all that will be set aside. But right now, here we are. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3. And then in Ephesians 1.14 he says the Spirit is our down payment of the future inheritance. The prosperity gospel, have you heard of that? Health, wealth. It's an over-realized eschatology. They're claiming the future, too much of the future for today. In the future, there will be complete health. There will be complete no more tears. But right now, there are tears. Right now, there is sickness. Jesus, before he enjoyed his resurrection body, had to carry his cross. And now we as the body of Christ, before we enjoy our resurrection body and the full inheritance, are called upon to journey the road that Christ journeyed. Who are we to think that we would be above our master? In this world you will have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see this diagram here, 
This is my attempt. It's a little bit hard. On the right side is, is actually a green or a light blue. But what I'm trying to show is that the new age, the new covenant, the new creation has actually come and intruded on top of the old age, the old covenant, the old creation. You see the two comings of Christ, first as cross, second with crown. In between those two first and second appearings is the already. This is where the gospel is proclaimed through suffering and through sharing. The church is expanding. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, with no prejudice toward the rich and the powerful. No, Jesus comes for the weak and for the broken. Just drawing them in to himself. Yet the day will come where the old age will be no more. And in that day, the full inheritance will be given. Now, in this overview, it's not my... Uh, I've intentionally been ambiguous regarding how all the details work out at the end. Godly men and women have different understandings of, for example, how the millennium works out. My purpose here is simply to stress Jesus wins. And with that, we can have great, deep comfort. So whether you're an amillennialist or a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or like maybe some of you panmillennialists it'll just all pan out <laughs> Jesus wins the king that's been anticipated since Genesis 3:15 wins the serpent gets crushed Jesus wins for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age already, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see there that tension of that overlap. The grace of God has already appeared, bringing us already salvation today as we wait for the blessed hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us already to be born again. To what? A living hope. Our eyes are looking ahead. We're not getting caught up too much in the present. We're taking comfort in the midst of our suffering, knowing that it will not be this way forever. Our hearts are are trying to live as we can in the already, and yet hoping for the not yet. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where everything happens. If Christ does not rise, our faith is futile. But he has raised. And because of that, we can be certain 
that every pain, every problem is indeed going to be put down. Satan has already lost. To what were we born again? What is the nature of this living hope? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It doesn't rot. It's completely pure. And it will never dim. It's kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready, ready to be revealed in the last days. May God give us endurance. So Jesus comes. He is the atonement to which every sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed. If Jesus never came, Abraham would never be saved. If Jesus never came, Moses and Ruth would never be saved. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Human sin demanded a human to be punished. And that's why Jesus, as the complete God-man, comes and fully identifies with us. Not simply to save Israel, but it's too light a thing that he would just do that. But that he would save people from every tongue and tribe. Christ's substitutionary mission. Here's what he says. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. You remember in Daniel chapter 9, sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, one like a son of man came before the Ancient of Days and received all authority, kingdom, and all power and dominion. Son of man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It could just be viewed as, oh, he's the son of Adam. Man and Adam being exactly the same. But I think he's doing so much more. He's identifying himself with that one who will triumph. The one who will receive all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet it says that he will triumph only through intense tribulation. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's the great exchange. We saw it already in Isaiah 53. Look at these texts. Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Whose trespass was that? Adam's. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of the one man, many were made righteous. This is the great exchange. For our sake, the Father made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of our sins, all of our guilt, all of our problems put upon Christ at the cross. All of God's holiness that we have turned against, all of that guilt put upon Christ at the cross. And his perfect honoring of the Father counted toward us simply by faith. 
We completely unrighteous. He completely righteous. He takes all of our guilt. We receive all of his goodness. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss. Everything. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the gospel. This is the greatest good news. That we who were powerless to save ourselves have been saved by mercy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. So we get good news. Good news of the glory of Christ. This whole story of God is the story of God's glory in Christ. From the very beginning, when we get God, 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 He's been working. For the fame of his name. The entire new covenant is not driven because Israel deserved it. No, he said it was for the sake of my name he would act. The good news of God's end times reign is nothing less than God's glory manifest in the person and work of Jesus. Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of their unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you now stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you what is of first importance. It doesn't get any higher than this. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Notice that in accordance with the scriptures. He expects us to be able to find it in the Old Testament. He died for our sins, just as the Old Testament prophets said would come to pass. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, just as the Old Testament prophets said would come to pass. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Jesus lived and died for God's glory. Everything about Jesus' life was in order to magnify his father, not to exalt himself, but to exalt his dad. The one who speaks on his own authority, Jesus said, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Father, the hour has come. I'm about to die. My prayer is glorify your son in order that the Son may glorify you. And the Father speaks, I glorified, or Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory. This is a story about God from start to finish. All things from him, through him, to him. That's why Jesus came. To make much of his father through a people who are surrendered to him. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation, a wrath turner. Propitiation means to turn away wrath, to propitiate. So Jesus is put forward in order to turn away God's wrath by his blood. And God was the instigator. God wanted to see his wrath averted, and yet he knew he was perfectly just. So the only way that he could stop his wrath from touching all of us is by pouring it out on a substitute. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because there were people like Abraham and Ruth, David, Uriah, Ezekiel, who were sinners. How could they be saved? Jesus hadn't come yet. God put forward Jesus at the end of time in order to show that indeed he was right. That he was operating properly when he forgave the sins of those in the past. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But now he sent Jesus in order to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of all who believe. From the days of Adam to the very end. God's glory raised Christ from the dead and through this, He glorified his son. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. To what end? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Do you see that? The glory of God was working, moving, in order to see Jesus rise out of that grave. In order that we too might walk in newness of life. We see him already who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, who is now, what? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Glory. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus was but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, for the sake of me, who through him are believers in God. It's the only way it happens, through Jesus, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our trust in Jesus does not mean we're not trusting in God. There's this remarkable unity so that our hope in Christ is a hope in God. God forgives sins and welcomes believers. Why? For his glory. 
the story of God. That's what this is all about. To see our worldviews revamped. That this is not first and foremost a world about us. This is a world about him. And for us to live purposefully in accordance with our, what God made us for, we need to get in alignment with God's greatest passion. If God's greatest passion is for his glory, then we should be living for his glory. God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. When we receive unbelievable mercy, the forgiveness of God, it makes him look great. We receive love. He receives glory. That's how it should be. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your namesake, in order to display your unbelievable mercy, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving transgression and iniquity and sin to a thousand generations. For your namesake, act in accordance with your character. Put it on display. I'm not worthy, but let me taste mercy. Show the world that you're that kind of a God. You remember in Exodus 34, when that passage shows up, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right after that expression of God's character is given, it says Moses fell on the ground and worshipped. And then he declares, God, you are exactly the kind of God we need to go with us, for we are a stubborn people. Stubborn people need a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, welcome one another as God has welcomed you for the glory of God. All of these texts pointing in the same direction. The Lord has anointed me, Jesus said, to bring good news. To what end? That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. That's what happens when we get planted by rivers of water, grounded in his book. We begin to blossom with leaves that don't wither, fruit that is just being produced in season. God is glorified and we are satisfied, unendingly grounded in the life-giving water. ever-increasing satisfaction in the bread of life. So Jesus comes and makes a way where there was no other way. He is the ultimate climax of all the hopes. The story culminates in him. And what we need to see is the kingdom of God to be established. If he is the temple, then we identify with him and all of a sudden, the temple begins to expand. 
We see Genesis 1.28, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it as imagers of God so that the glory of God begins to be seen. We see it begin to be fulfilled in the New Testament. Abraham moves from being a father of a nation to being a father of a multitude of nations. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, not only here but to other towns, because this is why I came. I was sent for this purpose. In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days, speaking about the kingdom. All of Jesus' life, from birth to the grave, was driven by fulfilling the kingdom of God vision that the Old Testament anticipated. When the kingdoms of the earth would be crushed, when the curse would be overcome, when the serpent's control would be put aside. So this is Acts 1, 1 through 3. Here's Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're expecting the kingdom to come. He says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You'll make much of me through the power of the Spirit from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In the Old Testament, there's definitely a sense that Israel's mission was a come-and-see mission. You want to encounter God, you have to come to the temple. In the New Testament, where does the go-and-tell sense come from? I think it comes because people still have to come to the temple. They still have to encounter the presence of God, but what's happening is that the temple is coming to them. Jesus is the temple. He goes up because his human body was limited, but his spirit can fill all the people that are identified with him. He ascends into heaven and sends back his spirit. I will put my spirit on you. You'll be my witnesses. And all of a sudden, in Jeremiah's language, the law gets written on our hearts. It's not bound up in a box in the Holy of Holies. No, we have become the Holy of Holies. The Lord is seated on the throne of our hearts. We, the Ark of the Covenant is now in here. And now everywhere the Christians go, the temple of God is encountering people. They are having encounters with the very presence of the living God as he is imaged and displayed through believers. In Indonesia, in Ethiopia, it's happening. It's supposed to be happening in your homes and in your workplaces. Little movable temples that are not making much of us. We're not the gods. No, it's the image of God in us being displayed. It's not the image of God. It's the image of God 
to make much of him in our lives. And specifically, God now embodied in the person of Christ so that we are increasingly growing to look like his image from one degree of glory to the next. From Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Where I'm from in Minneapolis, that's pretty much the end of the earth. And now I get to turn around and come back and spread the fame of God's name. You get to do the same. So Jesus says, I'm not get, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you're going to receive power and things are going to expand. Now, in that expansion, it reaches all the way to Rome. That's where the book of Acts ends. And Paul's testifying, the kingdom of heaven is at work. The kingdom of God is on the move. Which suggests to me that that movement, the conquest banner, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, Pilate, then my disciples would have already arisen with swords and come after you. But my kingdom is not of this world. So the gospel does not advance by a sword. It advances by suffering and by sharing. The gospel doesn't advance by a pistol. It advances by persuasion. Christians are willing to give up their lives in order to save others. Radical Muslims are willing to give up their lives in order to kill others. It is absolutely different. The kingdom of God is advancing. It's advancing through you and I as we give testimony to the worth of God in the midst of deep, deep suffering. Will we trust Him because of who He is rather than what He gives or takes away? Yes, we will. And all of a sudden, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, through the church, the rulers and the powers of this world, the spiritual powers are getting an object lesson of the worth of God. God has chosen to make known his wisdom to the devil and all of his minions by raising up a church that is willing to trust him even amidst deep suffering. I will not let him go. Jesus, don't let me go. Hold me, Jesus. Keep me trusting in you. Keep your words of promise before me. Keep your words of command in front of me. If that's all that I have, it's okay. Because I know that you're for me and not against me. That kind of living, that kind of lifestyle, images massively the worth of God. It puts God on display in ways that nothing else does. Why is it that God, when he has absolute power and can take away all my suffering, why doesn't he do it? One of the reasons is because he wants to say that he wants to show that he has power to give us perseverance in the midst of it. Certainly he can take it away, but he wants to show that I have the kind of power that can actually hold people through it rather than just relieve them of it. And in doing so, it displays his massive worth 
It pushes us out of pride, out of self-reliance, and he opposes those people. So suffering becomes a gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the persecution I underwent in Asia. I don't want you to be unaware. At 2 Corinthians, Paul is 20 years since the road to Damascus. 20 years since he encountered the living Christ reigning and ruling and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 20 years of sanctification. How many of you have been saved for 20 years? Praise God. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. He's already written First and Second Thessalonians. He's already written Galatians. He's already written Romans. He's probably already written First Corinthians. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware of, of the experience we underwent in Asia. Indeed, we had the sentence of death upon ourselves. We thought we were going to die. I don't want you to be unaware of this. You need to hear it, he says. I've been saved for 20 years, journeying with God. I've already written so many books of the Bible. And yet, he says... This happened so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Why did we almost die? So that we would not trust in ourselves. That's not the purpose of Satan. I've been saved for almost 20 years, yet there's so much self-reliance in my soul, says Paul, that the Lord almost had to kill me to weed out the self-reliance and make me dependent on him. I don't want you to be unaware of the intense suffering I underwent in Asia. That's an amazing, amazing view of the sovereignty of God. And the amazing view that says suffering is a gift because it keeps me from pride and God opposes proud people. We as Christians in the year of the Lord's favor, a year that's turned into 2,000 plus, in this year, age of the church, have to have a beefy understanding of suffering. We are not above our master and Jesus had to suffer intensely. Paul says in the book of Acts, only through many tribulations, many trials, will we enter the kingdom of heaven. And as we do, journeying, holding fast to what we know to be true and knowing that God is for us and not against us, as we do, it displays the amazing worth of God. He is honored and we are helped. The blessing begins to just expand in the book of Acts. It moves from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It hits Cornelius at Caesarea. Here we go. This is what we recall. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Then he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. From way back in Genesis, we've been hoping for the day when the curse would be overcome by the man, the male descendant, 
offspring of the woman, offspring of Abraham, in the line of Judah. And Paul says, what we heard back there was the proclamation of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's supposed to nurture hope in the gospel. And Jesus is the one through whom the blessing of God reaches the Gentiles. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. What's that going to look like? On the one hand, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, teaching them. Not simply teaching them. This is not about instruction. I I hope you feel that. I know you've gotten a, a massive download of information. But I hope you hear my heart. My goal is not just to teach you. It's to teach you to obey. That's what Jesus calls for, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you and doing so in the power of the one who is with us always, even to the end of the age. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth is the one who is for us. I said it the first night, the only sins that we can conquer are forgiven sins. We have to pursue holiness in the power of the gospel, not in the hope to gain it. If you're pursuing holiness in your own strength and not confident that God has already, through blood-bought grace, become 100% for you, it will crush you. You can't destroy pornography addiction with self-made power. You need blood-bought grace. That's the kind of power you need to preserve marriages. You need blood-bought grace to give you sustained trust in a God when your children are running from him and it's grieving your heart. You need blood-bought grace to, to gain perseverance and hope When two of your children are born with massive disabilities. You need to know that God is 100% for you. This is not about punishment. This is about purification. And he will not let you go. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the We just need to hear that. Because this is a hard world. A world filled with suffering and we can't act as though it's not there. If you're not feeling it now, it'll probably come tomorrow. But it won't last forever. He has overcome the world. Offspring, almost done, almost to our break. Making disciples from all nations for the sake of his name. That's what it's about. Ultimately, pointing to the greatness of God. Missions exist because worship doesn't. One day, missions will pass away, but worship will last forever. God is in the business of gathering to himself people, a community of worshipers, who will celebrate him and his good gifts perfectly, never getting bogged down, never missing the hot fudge Sunday for the glory of God and not missing the opportunity to trust him in the midst of our cancer. 
Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace, says Paul, grace and apostleship. To what end? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, Shooting hoops, doing geometry, going on a vacation, sitting in a service, cleaning a toilet, whatever you do, there's nothing too small, nothing too great that the glory of God is not supposed to be our driving passion. And remember, glory is not this strange thing. It's something we all understand. I mentioned the Olympics. I mentioned um, Cracker Barrel. When my daughters were young, whenever we went somewhere, um, they had a little baby that they wanted to take with them. That baby was precious to them. They just wanted to take it to the supermarket. They wanted to take it to the friend's house. They wanted to take it with them when we went to go visit grandma and grandpa. It was of value, and and in doing so, they were expressing what they were glorying in, where they were putting honor. My littlest children understand what this is about. If you're a husband... Or if you're a wife, you should be involved in considering how can I give glory, that is give honor. That's the word in Hebrew. It's the exact same word. The word for glory is the the word for weightiness or honor. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30 when it says, those who honor me I will honor, you could also translate it, those who glorify me I will glorify. So, in our lives, we have, for example, a spouse, or maybe, maybe it's better to go back to the dating world because usually people who are dating, they, they at least show it a little bit more. Like, you know, I, I just want to be by this person right here. You're always wanting to hold his or her hand, and something happens. Um, I don't know what it is. But in doing so, you're saying, I value you. That's giving glory. That, that's what we're talking about. Anybody in here um, have like, uh, like to remake cars? You know, you've got an old car and you're working on it. Anybody? Nobody. Well, you've heard of people who do that. <laughs> so, so you've been working on this car you're making it, whatever it is, and your child comes in with his basketball and starts banging on the side of it, and electricity just works through your back, and you, you freak out because you honor this car. It's weighty to you. You value it. And God is simply saying, as you're living out your day-to-day life, value me most. Just value me most. Let me be the lens through which you decide what movies you should watch. Let me be the lens that 
guides every one of your deeds. The clothes you wear. The way you talk. Just do it my way, not your own way. Let me be your king. For me as a dad, when I'm weary at night and I come home after a long day, it's so easy to enter into, this is about my kingdom. You be quiet. Go to bed. And, and I miss that this is about God's kingdom. How am I supposed to live as a servant leader in this context and shepherd the hearts of my children, not just govern their behavior? But it, we're just talking about, these are, glory can seem so abstract, but it's actually very tangible. We, we do it all the time. Whenever we express honor and weight, give weight to something, value something, we're, we're glorifying it. And God says, in everything you do, work it in a way that, that it's, it's actually going to display that you value me. It's my prayer that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Why don't we break right here? Because I'm looking and I don't have any clue how many slides I have. So it's already 8.15. Let's take a break to 8.30. We'll come back and continue on. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.